Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. believe it it's already 29 december as we record this i just uh, finished a we just finished a wonderful christmas uh you know four days ago i suppose um ah yeah wow just it, it's just crazy i'm just so glad to be talking to y'all uh i have been you know we my, my family and i we discussed um taking a little trip for the holiday maybe going somewhere but then it occurred to us wait we travel all year i mean it's literally my job is to get on planes and go places so we were just very lucky we had some f- uh family that was in town that would have been otherwise um uh with no place to go on the on the holiday and we had friends and we had each other so uh we just stayed home and it's been great and as as part of that i've just been able to sit here and just be as productive as i can be um you know uh working on code it's just been so much fun i mean i Normally I work on code, of course, but there's always it's always punctuated with all these other things. Like I need to have this meeting or that meeting, or I need to do this or that. Or there's always some deadline, some looming thing on the horizon. So these last uh, couple of weeks, this last week uh, and the next few weeks are are just wonderful because they offer a chance to focus on the things I just want to get done to clean up things. And for example, just before we started recording this episode, um, I Marie condoed my my GitHub uh, account, github.com, Josh Long, I moved more than 500 different repositories from more than a decade's worth of time to uh, Josh Long hyphen attic, A-T-T-I-C. So if you're, if there's a, a, a repository that you want uh, or that you've seen in some talk at some point in the last, I don't know, 15 years, uh, it's there. It's just been moved. Um, you, you, if you go to the old URL, for whatever reason, it should redirect you to the new thing. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to get my GitHub repositories down to a manageable sort of minimum, you know, and I'm, I'm still at like 50 plus repositories, but at least that I can kind of keep in my head roughly. And um, and this is all in keeping with what I've been doing. A lot of what, I, what I've been doing is just been going through code bases, updating them to Spring Boot 3. You don't want, I don't want technical debt in my code any more than I want it in your code after all. So I've been updating to Spring Boot 3, which has been... Um, Largely painless, except when it comes to uh, auto configuration, because obviously in Spring Boot 3, um, they changed the mechanism that's used to furnish auto configuration. So before, it would be it would be a, a common delimited list of classes in a uh, text file called spring.factories in the meta inf directory. Uh, and in 2.7, they introduced a new mechanism called auto configuration.import. It's a text file. Uh, that lives inside of metainf forward slash spring forward slash and then this long fully qualified type dot imports right it's blah 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 dot auto configuration dot imports uh, and there it's just a common delimited list of, of classes as well um, but it's been I've had to go through and in as I update one thing I have to go through and make sure that all the libraries on which it depends that have auto configuration are using the new thing uh, and that in turn has sparked a conversation around like, okay, well, I clearly I'm using the old Artifactory plugin for Maven. This is no longer even a, a viable approach. I should be updating and, oh, hey, look, I'm updating the uh, the Maven Artifactory production, uh, you know, uh, uh, flow. Maybe I should look at the GitHub action and sure as uh, as can be, there are some things I could do better in those as well. For example, the um, 
the way that I'm supposed to connect to my Kubernetes instance has changed. So I need to change the GitHub action to reflect that. And, uh, you know, um, just make sure that more of my GitHub actions are using the correct version of Java. And that's that gets me to another thing, which is uh, I have a GitHub action that I created, a custom, you know, standalone GitHub action that you can use. Um, inspired by a conversation I had on Twitter with uh, Bruno Borges. Uh, and the conversation was basically, why do I have to re-specify both the version of Java in the project proper, you know, the Maven build or the Gradle build, and in the GitHub action? Why couldn't GitHub actions as a pipeline derive that from the code uh, that it's acting on? You know, just if it inspect the pom.xml and somehow uh, extract that value. And it turns out it can, um, or at least it could be made to. So I created a custom GitHub action that does just that. Uh, so given a Maven code base, it'll involve the pom.xml, ask it to, you know, ask Maven to enter a question about a property, and then use that to export a variable, which you can then use in subsequent step steps um, to install the correct version of Java, right? Uh, so, you know, that's another thing I've been doing. It's just going through to make sure I'm taking advantage of some of my own best practices, you know, things I built for myself that I just really haven't applied to everything that I fruitfully could. And, uh, and you know, all these, like, you know how it goes. You tug on one little thread and it just you just end up going down this rabbit hole of modernization and so on. And then uh, there's also been the new AOT stuff, right? This is a new thing I'm uh, uh, working on. You know, you've heard me talk endlessly about that. I, I work on um, uh, the AOT stuff a lot. I, I care about it, right? Uh, and I've just been going through my code bases and making sure that wherever possible they have um, hints or that they work well in AOT, you know, and so now I can build reasonably complex applications uh, <laughs> using lots of different third-party libraries for which we have no prepackaged auto configuration uh, in Spring Boot proper, um, and it works. And it's just been really, you know, gratifying to see that be the case. I actually, for example, uh, the other day I had to build a um, hints class. I had to, you know, runtime hints registrar uh, implementation for the Rome RSS feed library, which it turns out loads quite a few classes um, at, at runtime uh, from a text file, no less. So both the text file and the classes it loads run afoul of GraalVM. You have to account for both the resource that's being loaded and the classes that are being re reflectively instantiated, right? And so I wrote a little hint that read that text file, also provided a hint for it, and then, um, and then wrote hints out for all of the different classes that are enumerated so that if they get loaded at runtime, it works. And, you know, this kind of stuff is not hard, uh, but, you know, inch by inch, you take it all together and you get a, uh, an application that went from taking a gig of RAM to taking 100 megs of RAM and now starts up in, you know, whatever, a tenth of a second or less, you know, faster than a light bulb, right? So it's just been really, really, <laughs> it's just been really re rewarding, you know, and... Um, uh, moving those Git repositories over, cleaning up my GitHub actions, cleaning up my code bases. I'm going to start publishing a lot more of my, my libraries to Maven Central. I've only got, I think, a few libraries there, but it occurs to me I might as well just publish them there. Uh, it's not like it's that much more difficult than just publishing them to my artifactory repository. Um, but, you know, uh, why not, right? They could be useful to others, especially now that they're becoming more polished and they've had a few years of uh, integration and implementation in other projects of my own, so I know that they work well and stand and have stood the test of time. Um, and also, I've just you know it's been as part of that still. It's also been kind of I write a lot of small services. I mean, we're talking you know 15, 20 classes, that kind of thing. Very small little code bases that are kind of focused on one little thing. They're 
their network utilities, their network, uh, well, they're microservices, but they're, I mean, they really are small. You know, they're like uh, very focused. Even They don't even have a, a, a broad sort of domain. They're just focused on one little thing. So a lot of times it's not daunting, uh, at least, to rewrite them. You know, that's the whole point is that they're so small. I can just look at them and go, oh, okay, I've thought about this. I've... Um, I want to revisit this. This I think I can do better. Or there are new use cases for which I need to account. And so that just happened to be the case for one of the services that I've got out there. And um, and I decided to make it more generic. Right now it was focused on something very specific. Uh, and it does what it does very well. But I wanted to expand its scope so that I could use it in other contexts. And, um, and so I ended up basically rewriting it. And that was really, really fun because um, you know, it's cleaner now. It's using... Uh, you know, it's it's just been better. And that in turn inspired me to think about sort of how I how I write code, right? And um, so many of my... So here's my thing. I, I feel a bit like a hypocrite here, but so many of my small services are small enough that I don't really feel anxiety by not heavily testing them, right? Because they're so small that there's just not a lot of room for them to hide, you know? And if they grew to any anything bigger, perhaps, I, I would certainly feel more anxiety about writing a lot more tests. And, you know, even some of them now, I think, oh, okay, I probably should write some tests. But if I can look at them after two years and kind of get what's happening in five minutes of, uh, you know, scratching my head, then, you know, I'm not really all that convinced I need those tests right now. Um, when other people join, of course, those tests become useful uh, and, and so on. But... As I'm the only consumer and the uh, only user of these things, I, I don't I don't feel that much anxiety, which is in stark contrast to my normal perspective. If you're building a code base of any size, of any maturity, of any significant size, uh, then yeah, write test. In fact, do it first. Right, write write those tests first. But these a lot of these a lot of these little services they start off as little scratches, little little. Uh, sketches of, of code and and I know you know like uh, it all starts off innocent enough <laughs> and then something then next thing you know you've got this giant monster of an application no test so I know exactly where this will lead to me uh, lead me to you know and uh, I hope to avoid that uh, you know as I talk to you I'm thinking maybe I should go back and write some tests I'm just staring at a code base right now for which some tests wouldn't be so bad but it was just really kind of interesting to go through and since I don't write a lot of tests I wonder why I mean, I do write tests generally, especially for larger applications. Um, but I wonder why I I felt so comfortable with this one, with this uh, minimally tested code base. And what it occurred to me is I, I have some practices um, uh, that have evolved. You know, my style has, uh, of writing code has evolved. And I've, I've identified some smells, just revisiting a lot of these different uh, projects. I've identified some smells that, to me at least... Um, uh, I try to avoid, right? Uh, just from my years of writing Java code. I've been writing Java since the uh, mid-90s, right? Since, whatever, 97, something like that, 96. So um, uh, my my style's changed, right? And it's gone to the, it's gotten to the point now where I almost never use the word public, right? If, my, if I have the word public in my code, I, I feel like I'm doing something wrong, especially if I'm building a microservice, right? Um, the only thing I communicate from one package to another is... Uh, events, right? That's, or, or maybe some core types that are in the root package, core interfaces, but very, very rarely, you know, 
I, I don't want public types. I, I, and so I find I, I don't need that. Um, I, I certainly try and package by feature, not by role. So, you know, the, this is the code related to this feature or that feature, not the controllers or services or whatever. Um, uh, obviously, nowadays I use records whenever I can for data types. Uh, I use um, private final fields, you know, whenever I can, constructor, in, constructor injection, whenever I can. Uh, and also I noticed that I prefer a lot of static private methods, a lot of private static methods. And I think the reason is because uh, were I to write this code in another language, a lot of that stuff would be a separate function. You know, if you if say I say I sat down and wrote this code in in Python or something equivalent, it would be very natural to have you know module level functions, functions that stood alone. You know, and uh, and I like standalone functions. I, I because sometimes you don't have a whole object. Sometimes you don't have class state. And in fact, I think class state complicates things sometimes. Sometimes I just want to know that given these parameters, I'll get this output, and there's no other thing save perhaps even a logger. Um, uh, that could that could change that, right? The logger is, you know, even that, you know, it's invariant. Um, so, so I, I like static methods because it makes me it makes it very clear. I, I don't think this needs class state, and even if it does require class state, I don't like my classes having this proliferation of uh, of fields. You know, that's obviously another smell, right? If you have ten different injected things, and maybe that class is doing too much, maybe you should extract that into smaller uh, strategies or interfaces or whatever. Um, so, you know, just, ge just generally finding ways to isolate the scope of a piece of code, right? To isolate the, the inputs and the outputs so that it's very clear upon first gaze what it's doing and with what. And uh, I think that's just been very useful. A lot of my code is, and, and indeed Spring itself, it just encourages this very clear sort of delineation of components by, by having well understood seams in your object graph, you know? Uh, and so I've just found that that's been very useful as well. Um, and then I, I even asked about this on Twitter. I think people should, you know, go check out my Twitter. There's a lot of cool stuff that people, I asked what, what other recommendations do people have of their own? Uh, what other things have they found quite useful? And it's just been kind of an enlightening thread. Um, and a lot of this, of course, is sensitive to, um, you know, what the language allows, what it encourages. Right. Uh, so, um, and as the languages are going to change, so too will the patterns and the conventions, uh, um, the idioms that we we have when we when we write code in that language. And case in point, Java twenty is around the corner, and there are some amazing things coming. Uh, there's record patterns, right? Which is a basically you can do an instance of and then destructure a a record into its constituent parts. Uh, and then just use those constituent parts. You can assign variables to the constituent bits. So the canonical example is, you know, if O instance of point parentheses int X int Y parentheses, um, I can then just, I, that, that int X and int Y are the X and Y values, uh, but they've been destructured. So I don't have to say point P, I can just say X and Y. I can, in the if block, I can say system out print line, you know, X or print line, y, right? I don't have to do if instance of point space p and then p.x and p.y. So that's really cool. That's a, a, a thing you might expect from more functional languages like, like Scala, right? Another big feature, uh, of course, is pattern matching for switch statements, sort of in that same vein. 
uh, as record patterns, right? The idea that I can um, do a switch statement and say, okay, if this is like, this is very much a skull thing. We don't even have this in Kotlin, right? The idea that I can do, uh, you know, cases based on the, the type of the message. So case triangle T, then do something with the triangle case, whatever. You see this kind of thing a lot in, uh, in Akka, for example. I remember, you know, it is the core idiom without which I think Akka would be a very, very different um, different thing, you know. Uh, Akka is an actor model, uh, my friend. It's just a really nice piece of software. Uh, what else? There's foreign functions, of course. Oh, I cannot wait for this. This is a, this is a, a an amalgam of a number of different initiatives um, that aim to provide a superior alternative to JNI, which, which I've used and understand enough to know that I don't want to understand or use it anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it just looks good. It's, it's bringing to Java the sort of ease of integration, uh, that other languages like Ruby and Python and, and, and Lua and, and the like have with native code, you know, C or, or, or C++ or whatever. Uh, really excited. And of course, Project Loom, Project Loom is, you know, uh, a huge thing as well. So there's just so much cool stuff, my friend, so much cool stuff. Uh, and I kind of wonder what my conventions will look like. I expect I'll be using a lot more uh, records and pattern matching and, and the, the like. I'm using records right now. I mean, I, I I can hardly stop myself. I love records. Records are hot sauce. And again, because they just, they just, they delete whole types, you know, the whole, whole, code pages just get whittled down to like one line, you know, and it's just so gratifying because that's what it should be. It's just one line. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's a struct, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's just a data type. I wanted to have some state and no more. There's maybe there is a constructor, maybe there's some basic validation, but basically it's just a, a very simple object. I don't have, this is not going to have polymorphism. I'm not going to, you know, there's not going to be a whole number of different methods and implementations. It's just, I want to store some variables in a convenient way. And a lot of times they're anonymous, you know, like, uh, I just want something in the context of this one little reactive pipeline. Give me an, a, a, a tuple, basically. Records give me the, most of the benefits of tuples. Um, I can just create an, I can create a record inside of a method, you know, so it doesn't even, it doesn't even bubble up to a top level type or anything, right? It's just super useful. Another thing that, one thing I loved about um, lambdas is uh, you can actually, create a type, um, a new anonymous object that has fields. And those that since it's a new anonymous, it's a new object, parenthesis, parenthesis, curly bracket, curly bracket, right? You're dynamically subclassing object and you're adding fields. Well, what is the reified type of that? There's no way to describe that, right? You can't say object subclass X equals new object, parenthesis, parenthesis. You can only assign it to object, which means that viewers, observers of that type will only see the interface of javalang object, not the specialization that's implied by your having having subclassed it, right? Uh, well, with, with var, there is a way to capture that, right? I can say var x equals new object, parenthesis, curly bracket, into x equals 12, and uh, semicolon parenthesis, and then on the next line, I can say system out x dot uh, you know, sorry, uh, you know, my variable dot X, I can print out the X value there and it'll say 12. It'll, it'll, the compiler will see that var variable and, and allow me to work with it. So that, that's great in the context of lambdas because I can now create these anonymous objects. Uh, and then in uh, the compiler propagates that type, you know, it, if you do, um, generics, for example. So it's just been really amazing how easy it is to create these dumb little types that just 
live for a minute and then go away, right? And that ease of creating these types is long, long uh, been awaited. Uh, I can't wait for functions to get that same treatment. Right now, functions are a lot better, obviously with lambdas, but I would, what I would love to see is actual true like functions, you know, uh, first class functions, not, not things that get reified to interfaces, but actual dynamic functions, right? Uh, structural functions um, where I can just say, you know, var my func and then assign the type to it equals and then a lambda, right? Um, uh, and it can just be any arbitrary thing, not not something that can be reified to Java tail function types, you know. Um, but with those two things in place, you get to you get yourself uh, an amazing concoction, you know, uh, quite a brew of Java indeed. So I'm, uh, you know, things are looking bright, my friends. Really exciting stuff. <sighs> and you know, I say all this because I'm excited about the new year. By the way, stay tuned. I'm, I'm so much stuff coming right just in the beginning of the year. So much stuff. Now, of course, before we can get there, we have to get through today's episode. And I wanted to make that as easy as possible. So I invited one of my all-time double Dutch favorite human beings ever, uh, my friend, colleague, uh, and uh, just all-around amazing human being, Deshaun Carter, onto the show. Now, I don't know where to start with him. Uh... He's been on the developer advocacy team on which I work uh, for like just just north of a year now. But he's been spiritually a member of the Spring team and the developer advocacy team for many years. He's awesome. He's a extraordinary human being, an amazing engineer, uh, an amazing speaker. I've just I have nothing but amazing, ebullient, effusive, kind things to say about him. Uh, just 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 I don't know. Just imagine the the embodiment of the idea of wanting to hug someone, and that's that's him. He's just such a, yeah, he's just great. I just I just I'm just so glad um, that he's on our team and not working for the distinguished competition because you know he's great. He's amazing, and I I've just been really grateful to to have gotten the chance to work with him. And um, yeah, I was so glad when he finally was able to sit down and, and record an episode with me. Uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot from him. I always learn a lot from him. Uh, and just, just trust me, this is a, this is the kind of energy that you want in your lives, my friends. This is this this is the energy that I want uh, to carry me into the new year. Uh, and so let this be the last episode of the year. Let's just end it on a as high a note as possible, um, with the one, the only, the amazing. Spring Developer Advocate, Deshaun Carter. All right, this is take two. And I'm glad this time, this is a, this time for people who don't know, we, we recorded, we had a, a half start at, an, at this episode, at this discussion. And then you had to, you had a, a family the thing, kids. which happens. Right, yeah, the kids, they're like, uh, hardware interrupts for life you know yep. um and uh and then and now you're back and and normally the reason that we have a second go at an interview is because of uh of zoom right zoom fails in some catastrophic way that forces a, or necessitates a, a restart and um it's just nice it's nice to have a change change of pace here you know kids are a good problem to have you know that's a yes. an interrupt uh, yep. but it's a and it fits in that bucket good problem to have yeah, 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 exactly. Like it's Zoom failing. That's a bad interrupt, you know, bad problem to have. Yeah. So 
Um, everything's okay though, right? Nobody's everything's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's try this again from the top. So for those of you who don't know you, I, I, I'm gonna. You're 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 my friend, and uh, you're, you're now uh, on the developer advocacy team with me. You're fairly uh, new, but you, that's just. It's, that's just the formality of it, right? But in spirit, you've been there for a long time. Can you yeah. introduce yourself to the people so that I don't butcher it? You know, who are you? What do you, how would you um, describe yourself, et cetera? Um, I am Deshaun Carter. Okay. I am a Spring Developer Advocate. Uh, today is day 361 uh, in this role. So just coming up on a year. Just and, about. Uh, yeah. Just put, put it another way. When people see or know that, when they hear this episode, You'll, you'll have been here for in, in on paper yes. form, formally, which doesn't matter in any way except for the curiosity of it all. Uh, you'll have been officially a, a spring of advocate for a year. How's it gone so far? It's wonderful. And I'm just starting to hit my groove. Um, you and I had a conversation earlier this week uh, where somebody somewhere, uh, they've called themselves a spring developer advocate. Mm-hmm. Which maybe is great. internal, maybe that's like a thing. And I, I get that. It's like they're yeah. that person internal to their company, they're not our team. And I think that's great. I think there's a lot of spring developer advocates that might not work on our totally. team, but they are still a part of what we do. And huge. In that sense, yes, I've been a spring developer advocate for a long time. And, and well, I mean, actually, I, did, I didn't even mean it in that sense. I just think a lot of people would have assumed, given that you used to work at Pivotal and we're such a, a common uh, a, a figure at the Spring One Tour events and other sort of visible uh, end user sort of visible uh, activities. I just, you know, a lot of people would have rightly assumed that you were uh, a part of the, the Spring and Spring Advocacy team. It was my favorite compliment. Uh, yeah, but I, but but you're right. If we can, uh, our job is best done when we make other, when we clone ourselves, when we get other Spring developer advocates, right? Yes, that's, that's the network effect. That's that's when we're doing. And by the way, when you talk about your, you're just getting into your groove, I, your rhythm, or whatever. I, your, 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 um, your amble is most people's sprint. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're awesome, man. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I, I can't believe this is what you consider just getting into your groove. It's just been uh, like a rocket the entire, entire time you've been here. So, well, thank you. I, it's been fun, you know. And uh, our team is pretty amazing. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to, uh, uh, it was, so it's hard to like, like, Hey, am I doing enough? Because our team is so amazing and uh, you know, uh-huh. I want to keep up. Uh, yeah. And it took a while to, for me to like find out, Oh, here's the thing where I can fit and I can help the other team. I can fill in a gap and you've, Oh, you've, you've wonderful identified you new gaps and fill those too. Actually, by the way, I, I'm going to, I bet I have, I, my suspicion is that our team is awesome because of Tasha. Now, um, you know, good, good leadership sets the, the tone oh, yeah. for everybody underneath, right? And I think you and I are blessed in that one respect. Uh, they have just an amazing uh, so fairness leader. Beyond just the good leadership, like the, the, the capability to <laughs> put together a team like yes. this. Our team isn't a team of this type of person. Our team... You know, again, like kind of the Venn diagram, our team covers a massive range of topics and like personalities and approaches. So when we're out in the community, somebody 
on our team is going to be able to connect with just about everybody in the community. Like there's, there's a person on our yeah. team that's going to be a really good fit for just about everybody. It's not always the same. All the service side stuff. Team that kind of together. Yeah. The, some of the parts, right. The whole cloud. Like we've done an amazing but, job. She's done an amazing job of putting the best. this. Yeah. This team that covers so many bases in so many different ways. And when that, was the last time that she ever uh, yelled at you? Um, well, I don't get yelled at. Exactly. I, Nobody gets yelled at. Uh, like, when was the last time she sent you even a sternly worded uh, memo or some nonsense like that? Yeah. Like, I think that even never. the last case was around expense reports. And I'm sure that she was getting yelled at. I'm sure the email no. she got was in all caps. Uh, yet, you know, the, the reminder sure. that I got was, hey... Yeah, nice. That's just a suggestion, you know. Like uh, my point is, I don't have any, you know. Like she reminds me of Superman's cape. So I I, like I don't want to geek out here too much. There's for some reason, you know. Like, do you ever think about that? Why does Superman like if he gets shot with bullets? uh, You know why? Why doesn't his shirt rip? You yeah. know, he's bulletproof, but what about his clothing? Like, you know, and so they explain that away with, um, it, it, it's, he's protected by an aura. He actually emits like a little aura around his body. And so that aura protects the things he's wearing. And that's why uh, the cape sometimes tatters. Oh. You know what I'm saying? If he gets in a really heated Super yeah. battle with a super bad guy or gal, uh, you know, it's possible that cape might come to shreds. Um, but it's still a very strong cape, and it's because it's made from this like, like cloth from his home planet or some nonsense like that, right? So, so, and then I just, I never, I always thought, I mean, he's, there's so much about that character that had they had to like retrofit onto him, you know, uh-huh. to, to make some of what he did just that more approachable. It still didn't really close the gap between you know, reality and, 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 and fiction, but it's interesting. And, and so they, so, so that cape is still really strong though. You can't like, you can't just go up to it with a pair of scissors. You'd have to like right. something that would knock Superman off of his feet is the only thing that might have a chance at tearing that, that cloak. And so I remember watching as a kid, I remember there's this episode of a cartoon, the old uh, 1970s uh, Superman or Superboy. Maybe it was Superboy. It was whatever. It was, there's a cartoon where, for some reason, he and Lois are visiting a robot factory. Don't ask me why. This is when we when we imagine there'd be robots in mass production. Yep. Uh, just you know, fly robots with jetpacks that could fly and do things in service to you know their inferior squishy overlords. Um, and at at some point, predictably enough, these robots ran amok. They were uh, some programming went wrong, and they started they went rogue, right? And they started acting against their they're uh, squishy overloads. Uh, and so at one point, there's some, what, what else ha- what happened? I don't remember exactly the circumstance, but for some reason, there's a vat full of like molten hot lava, right? Or, or maybe it's just smelt m- metal, you know, uh, yeah. molten metal of some sort. Yep. Uh, and anyway, it falls. And of course, Lois happens to be right underneath it, right? So Superman flies in and it's too, he's moving too quick to move her. Right, if he if he were to like, what's that word? Uh, tackle her. 
Yeah. You know, at that speed, like every bone in her body would break, you know? Yep. So what's the point of moving her away from the lava at that speed if she's just going to die anyway, right? Right. Or, or something. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm just imagining what the calculus behind <laughs> all this was. But, but anyway, he uses his cape. So he stands over her and uses his cape, and the cape is strong enough to, to the lava just, like, a, like water off of, a, of a, off of a duck. The yep. lava just flows off the cape, narrowly missing her. Uh, and and so I kind of I keep thinking about that because of course like the heat would be searing hot the air would be searing yeah. hot just yeah. and and so she would in reality reality she's sustained like third degree burns but for the through the magic of science fiction and Superman comics and cartoons somehow that just worked right? yeah the aura right the, you know, yeah the that aura, aura and <laughs> and the cape yeah together yes create a situation that is not normal and it doesn't I exist don't know why you're it's like it clearly makes sense. Well, that's Tasha, right? Somehow, that cape has protected us from like searing hot lava that would kill us instantly and just destroy every any evidence that we ever existed. And yet, on on this side of the cape, it just feels like it's a cool day, you know. Somehow, there's lava there, and yep. we feel like we're fine over here. And we're fine. And here. you know, that and, sure that cape might come to tatters, but it would take. It would take like you know earth-shaking power to do it. You know she's she's that strong, that amazing. Yeah, and and things are still crazy right mm-hmm. now. It's still twenty twenty two, and lots of stuffs <laughs> happened. Right, uh, our our company is being acquired, and that's going through. But with all the questions and all the what's going on, she's done an amazing job of not letting us get worried. No, answering I mean, all of our questions like are we being acquired i don't even know that i, I have no thing and um, it's been amazing so with like it hasn't been easy to be superman's cape this year exactly Natasha. yeah and she's doing a great job of it it's hard being a cape i never that's a bumper sticker there um yeah anyway like she's awesome so i'm um so she she's in her infinite wisdom uh uh you know elected to to hire you, for which I'm I'm extremely grateful. And you've done so many things since joining. Um, obviously, the thing I think I, 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 it depends on what people are looking for and, and their use cases. But one of the things for which I think you've uh, rightly become very well known uh, is your work around the bill packs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because that serves a real palpable sore spot. You know, uh, it it it. it it is this uh, this soothing uh, salve uh, for what ails us, you know. Which is <sighs> which is what? Can you describe the problem and then the solution? Well, so Bill Packs has been around for a while, right? What is that? I remember the Heroku stuff and thinking like this is too good. Yeah, way back in the day, like the whole cloud native story, I guess for me, like started back then, like with Heroku. Like what it was doing. I was like, this is this is the way things should be. I want to hit get commit and I want to see things running in production. That's yeah, amazing. This is my app, run it in the cloud. I don't care how. Yeah. Right? And I'm still of that mindset. You know, there's so many things that get in between us in production <clears throat> uh, for good reason. But <laughs> as a developer, I don't want to be aware of it. I don't want to worry about it. I I was in the seat where I was making Docker files. Oh yeah, I'm going to deploy this on my infrastructure and Docker is amazing. And I could deploy 18 different operating systems 
with all their different configurations because I pulled it off a of Stack Overflow. And I could take it right and throw it into a Docker container. And, okay, cool. It's self-contained. Right. Um, but then when something goes wrong, I am then maintaining all of those different Docker files. Uh, and I and I was like, oh, okay, well, this is what you do. There's a CDE and I got to go upgrade all 80 of these different services that have their <laughs> Docker files. And it was pain. Like that That was a, a pain. And I have scar tissue from that. Um, and build packs were there. Build packs were an option that I chose not to use. Uh, and then when I did, when I switched from Docker files to using build packs, right? Shoulders got lighter. My smile yeah. more often, and and that there was tons of value because I had right. confidence in what was going to production. Um, and and I was paying attention, you know, grabbing the the. The new build packs, and sometimes I was using the newest build pack, even though it wasn't supported on the platform at the time. I liked getting, I liked kind of being on that front edge, and then it it worked, right? This as a story for what I was doing with customers, it just made a lot of sense. It was an easy win to switch from Docker files to build packs, just that alone, right? Somebody a boatload of time. Oh, for sure, yeah. Friends on that friends, right? Throwing Docker files, you know. I've always said that. During the pandemic, the uh, New Jersey said, hey, um, sorry, your checks aren't going to come, your unemployment checks, because our systems are written in COBOL. And, oh, dear. Uh, and there's no COBOL developers. Yeah. Uh, and that story made the news for whatever, a couple of weeks yep. you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. And a couple of us decided to jump in and see, like, hey, what would this do? Build packs are awesome. Cloud-native build packs had just kind right. of been announced. And... I took it for a spin. So my journey into cloud native build pack started with the COBOL build pack. That was just a POC, just to prove that it, it could be done. Right. Build pack idea and feed it some COBOL source code and have it work. And it was awesome. It is awesome. I remember that. Oh yeah. I, I sort of memory holds anything with COBOL in my life. It's, it's just a survival mechanism, but I do now remember that. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, that's wow. Yeah, you built the COBOL build pack, and and you were. I, this is one of those things where I think people were so busy asking if they could that they forgot to ask you if they should. Right. Uh, right. The answer is no. You you should not have built a build pack for COBOL. But now, but it sounds like it solved the pain point as usual. So being in that space for a little while, like exploring and, and having to go into places that I normally don't go by myself. Right. Uh, the different channels and different uh, spaces where COBOL developers are active. I had, to, I had to become a COBOL developer in order to deliver something to the COBOL developer community. Is it like method acting for software? I, I think that's what it is, right? Okay. You want to have like the right uh, idiomatic uh, you know, phrasing and, and you want to have the same process that they're doing. I can't go into yeah. a, a COBOL group and expect them to behave like, Job developers, they've got history and their tool sets are different. So when you deliver something, it's got to match the way that they work. Um, and it was nice. I, I got to watch kind of that COBOL build pack thing grow and, and see others adopt it. And, it. and it was cool that it was actually being used. Uh, you know, when originally it was just academic. But right. that experience with that build pack allowed me to tackle this, this ARM64 approach. Right. Hobby uh, is around Raspberry Pis. And 
when Spring Native first got introduced and the, the Maven plugin for creating images, when that first got introduced, I was like, I need this. Right. And I called in, I don't remember what even thing it was, but it was a, something that was live. I was listening to it on my way to the, the gym and Dr. Dave Sire was on talking about this build image process. And I don't know if I text or I called in or whatever, but I, I said a question, what about arm support? And he said, yeah, well, here's what you need to do. And it made sense. Wow. And then I went home and I, I did it right after my, my workout. And that's where it started. And, and it's great because, uh, you know, lots of reasons. It's not like it's an unsolvable problem. It's just a matter of uh, time, space, and, 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 and the rest. But for whatever reason, the official support has been lagging. I think most of it has to do with infrastructure. It's very hard to build. M1 images on GitHub Actions, for example. Um, perhaps that situation's changed. I don't even know. So it's still, so the underlying problem is infrastructure. The, the team, uh, and I'm referring to the Keto team, they don't have ARM64 resources. Right? They don't want to maintain ARM64 resources. Uh, I believe that they're using GitHub Actions for a lot of the stuff. Uh, but at some point, uh, as I'm going down my own thing, my hack it through, get it done. It looked nothing like you would want to consume as as an open source community. Uh, it was hacked together for me in my little home lab. But then right. Usa, uh, who is uh, a big part of the BuildPacks community, huge, yeah, shared uh, kind of a, a step back, like, hey, here's what we're trying to accomplish at a high level, and he shared this repository that kind of broke it down. And be like, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's how you can get your own ARM64 build pack. Uh, and I followed his process. I switched. I'm like, hey, I'm going to do this. And then right. over time, I just kind of you make it better. Tried to keep up with what was happening uh, upstream. And I, I was having fun with it. But up until like March, it was for me and my Raspberry Pis. Uh, I right. had uh, Lee, our teammate, share the uh, Terraform for standing up ARM64 in Oracle Cloud. Uh, and wow. I to kind of build, make it a little bit faster than the 30 minutes it was taking on a Raspberry Pi 4. So using yeah. RollVM in Oracle Cloud to create the images that I could run on my Raspberry Pis. But did you put a, like a GitHub action runner? I did. I made a self-hosted wow. runner and that repository is all in my GitHub. Uh, yeah. But what happened was people started using the build pack. And there was a, there was a point in time, I think it was March or April, where... Within two days, you and Oliver both said, hey, my build pack's not working anymore. And I was like, uh-oh. Yep. <laughs> uh, you guys are both on M1. It was working fine uh, on the ARM64 VM. So I was yeah. like, oh, what's going on? I had to go out and buy an M1 so I could fix that build pack. I felt at that point in March that this build pack had enough uh, usage that I owed it to the community, <laughs> especially you and Oliver, to fix it. And I, you know, got the M1 and I pushed out a new release on Monday. I think the, I bought the M1 on a Friday and I pushed out a new release on Monday. I remember that. And by the way, like I, that's another example of you wearing the skin of a build pack user, like that inhabiting the space, like going full method actor, uh, you know, like feeling the pain. What is the right thing? I'm trying to figure out what we call method acting for software. You know, I guess it's just learning a problem domain. That sounds so much less boring. <laughs> um, you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, it was yeah. great. Yeah, so your commitment to like really just being able to uh, occupy the same space as the people suffering from this was is 
it shows. And I'm so I do remember that, by the way. That was actually, you were right. That's earlier this year. Um, and that felt good. So, in, really great for us, too, by the way. Thank you. In the world, right? In uh, software and tech and what we do, I yeah. realized a long time ago that I liked being able to see people use the work that I was doing. Like, I liked to see. Yeah, I like to see my work being enjoyed. I liked getting feedback uh, on the work that I was doing. It made me feel good. Like that was a part of that um, energizer that I had uh, right. on working on the stuff that I did. And now this build pack is that. Like I get to see people using it. I see the value that it has on the people that are using it. And now I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying improving it and keeping it up to date and and awesome. bring it back to that community. It's fun. And it, it, it's satisfying because now you can use the M1, which is and, yeah, uh, use the M1. Anybody who's had the misfortune of listening to the show before knows that I am a big M1 fan. That thing is, I mean, ARM is a you know wonderful in of itself, but M1 in particular as a flavor of ARM is just sorcery. I don't I still don't understand it. You know, I, I, my last M2. Yeah, I was talking about M1s and ARM64 and somebody else said, M2. What about yeah, that? Sure. So I, I had to, you know, add that and change, you know, M1 or M2. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess we can call it the M series, but then people are going to think I'm referring to the BMWs, mm. uh, the Beamers. Mm. I don't even know. Yeah, what do we call that? X86 implies something very specific. Yeah. M series, M. Yeah, I don't know. M1 or M2 for now. Whatever. <laughs> so much work. Anyway, yeah, I like the M2. I like the M1. That's so cool. So did you, so that, uh, that's a good point too, by the way. That's a great use for Oracle Cloud. Uh, good on them for having that option available. I, I think there are some other ARM providers. I think Amazon has an ARM thing now. Yep, uh, Graviton. Graviton, yeah, yeah, that one. Yep. Uh, but yeah, fully on, on Oracle for having it as early as they did, you know? Well, here's the thing. Even before the native stuff, the ARM64 option right. for Java was very valid. For some right. workloads, switching from x86 to ARM64 oh, sure. yeah, yeah. gives you a big boost in performance. Same bytecode, but on a, on a VM, you know, let's, let's say a four-core 16-gig VM uh, in Amazon, x86. Uh, right. Versus that same size, four core, 16 gig on their Graviton, you see a performance boost for some workloads just by switching the architecture. Right. But also by switching the architecture at Amazon, for instance, that same size VM has a big cost savings. I, right. you know, the number I throw around is 33%. I think it's 33%. At least it was at one point. You got right. a 33% savings on the same size VM with an ARM64 processor. So just that was compelling. And then yeah. you add on that 33% savings and, and you do some of these processes as native, as AOT. Oh yeah, now we're talking like how much- 80% of your memory just and yeah. reduced. You know? So there's all of these different vectors where ARM64 is compelling and, and exciting. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, again, I, I, I kind of think about the Raspberry Pi edge case, meaning edge, like 
out in the woods or uh, yeah, yeah, out like, of a, a telephone pole or antenna or whatever, right. edge devices, uh, ARM64 makes a lot of sense. Oh, for um, sure. Uh, it can yeah. still do a lot of things that they need to do. Um, and that well, was I mean, kind of where I was coming at it from. At this point, uh, you know, I, I, I think we can safely say that um, Intel, you know, x86 is very much the minority, right? If every single cell phone out there is using ARM of some sort, basically, right? Or not Intel, you know, like when was the last time you bought an Android with a right. Intel x86 in there, you know, that's kind yep. of thing. Um, the, you're saying like the number of processors running today in the world, the Intel's probably... I, I would reckon, I mean, even, and, and yeah, I imagine there's, like if you're Google or Amazon, you probably have like just ballpark number. You might have a million servers, you know, but... Yeah. And maybe the majority of those are x86, but that still doesn't. That do you think? Do you reckon there are more that? I mean, there's there's gotta be what well, several billion in Kansas City phones out there. Right? Yeah, how many cities have a million people in them? And you know, let's even even half of those cities. Yeah, if half the people in those cities are have a cell phone, right? That yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think worldwide it's like less than half of the people on the planet have internet, right? But uh. But still, I would I'd be very surprised if two billion two billion people, two billion people didn't have cell phones, you know, um, of some sort, some smartphone since 2007, you know. Yeah, um, and now I'll say this too: there was a point in time where uh, a friend of mine he worked over at Dell, and right. I couldn't comprehend the size of some of these data centers. Like right. I couldn't right. how many machines and how many processors they were throwing into a. Uh, a for you server in some of these uh, customers. So I understand the scale is there, right? It, there's a lot of Intel processor running around the world. Oh, sure. But yeah, I, I, I would say that ARM64 is probably dominating at this point. Yeah, exactly. So for us to like, for it to be like a, a, a and I, I get where our market is. Again, if you're running a Docker container, Dollars of Donuts are doing it on a server today in late 2022, but uh, you know I think that's certainly changing. So you're, uh, as usual, ahead of the ahead of the curve there. You know you're delivering something that people are going to need today, and they'll definitely need tomorrow. You know, like it's super useful. Um, another thing, uh, you know that, that I've I've really quite liked is you uh, and uh, uh, our our esteemed colleague Dan Vega have this great office hours thing you do which is a, a youtube thing and a twitch thing and uh channels, you know, yeah all the all the all the media great run down every week uh big yeah. fan um that's been fun that's honestly right now that's the thing that i look to i'm most excited about every week uh so it's on tuesdays right now uh hopefully mm-hmm. we'll be adding more later but yeah we go in and we look at office hours type things like wanting to be that person that uh spot on that extended team uh so we look at the calendar like hey what releases are coming out we get excited about all the projects uh and yeah and then we'll kind of like share like other news and stuff like stuff that we've heard uh and then we kind of will demo something always be ready for a demo and then we just take questions and what's happened is we can see that the audience has grown we have people that are coming back week after week and we can kind of like through the questions that they ask, we get to see people go from how do I start with Spring Boot to 
what backend should I use? Or how do I use multiple uh, uh, containers in my class path? How do I do these things? Right. How do I uh, add different data sources? And we kind of get to work through some of the things that people run into. And Which is super valuable. A blast. You are, blast. people People are going to set uh, an extra place at the table for somebody who's helped them get to production successfully. You know, so I know people, I know uh, you'll, you, You've, you've no doubt, uh, you know, ingratiated yourself with a lot of people by just being a steady voice there. I, I, I certainly appreciate it. It's fun. It is the thing that I look forward to each week. Uh, the community is great. Dan's amazing. Uh, and we get to, yeah, we get to do stuff. We get to do fun stuff and we get great questions. But it feels like we're helping. And uh, Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. Wow. Okay. We, 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 we talked about the build packs, which I love. I talked about office hours, which I love. Um, what's the big thing you feel like you're working on? What's the thing like, you know, what's the, what have I missed? I feel like I've missed a lot because you, you've just done so much in this lab. It's only been a year. It's not even been a year proper since you got here, but I already feel like, you know, it's just been a whirlwind. Um, yeah. So what we do, uh, is we try to we try to introduce new stuff to the community. Uh, one of the other things is we it's always good to reset the baseline. One of the things that I have found uh, since the recent releases of Spring Framework Six and Spring Boot Three is there's a lot of information out on Google's and in tips and tutorials and videos that it's just outdated. So right now specifically we kind of have to reset everybody like, and give them examples that are working with Spring Framework 6 and Spring Boot 3. Right. And oh, yeah. I'm still, I still feel like I'm a developer. So I also well, you are. care about getting things to production, like the experience, like what does it feel like? Yeah, for the people that I'm talking to. So I try to play along. I, I, I try to go through the same things that they're going through. Um, I want right. to have things that are, are running and I want to have problems when a CVE comes out. How am I going to handle it? I want to go through an upgrade. I want to use the Spring Boot Migrator. I want to do the things that our community is doing. So what I'm yeah, trying to do is just kind of work through those things and share so that there's a current valid example for people to find and use instead of the outdated stuff. Yeah. So what about that? Like the, the whole Spring Boot 3 stuff we just talked about arm right and uh, the incredible opportunity for performance there and obviously a, a, a strong theme in spring Boot 3 is the new aot stuff um and we you mentioned spring native earlier right which is yeah it's still there but it, the logical extension of that the logical you know next step after spring native is the spring Boot 3 aot engine yeah so to remind everybody the spring native was the experimental project Mm -hmm. that the spring team basically used to learn uh, best practices. Like, Hey, we're going to find out these things along the way uh, in order to do it. We have to kind of give an opportunity to find out those things. So getting the feedback from spring native, all the lessons right. learned from spring native were put into spring boot three. We're put into spring framework six as we're going to do things. We're going to rebase and make it so that we don't have the headaches from doing it the old way. We're going to make things easier right. so we can, yeah, go down this AOT path going forward. But it took it took some work and it took some years. But Spring Native 
was the project that helped provide what we have baked in first class, right? Spring, number six and spring week three. And now my understanding is spring native. It's, it's still there. It still works with your 2.x. Uh, yeah. And, but I don't think it's going to take any more updates. I think all of the updates that we're going to have around AOT processing are going to land in spring boot three and spring framework six, and that'll be the path. Right. But it's still a great like step, right? I understand that there's a lot of teams that haven't been able to make the upgrade from 2.x to three for whatever reason. That spring native is still there, right? As an experiment, as a, maybe it's that one workload that you've got 10,000 instances of that costs you the most, but it is a good candidate for AMT processing. Maybe there's just one that, right. you know, getting that over the, over the hurdle of getting it to uh, AMT processing saves your company, you know, millions of dollars. And that's entirely possible with some of these workloads. So it's still there. It's not going to like disappear. Uh, but all of the new stuff, all the new support is going to be thrown into spring framework six and spring week three. Yeah. And, and, and that I think is super interesting. Like, have you, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've, you were, you were, you and I were like working on the code and trying things out during the spring native cycle. But I think for people who tried spring native and, and thought they saw everything there was to see, I would just really adamantly encourage them to take a, take a, take another look because as good as it was in spring native, it's just night and day, right? Uh, oh difference now. now. So much better. Right. The versions that, that we were using uh, of Grawl VM right. over the last year plus, um, Grawl VM has changed. Grawl oh, VM has considerably. So much. So like the cost, the, the time, that negotiation, that trade-off that we're doing, the, the right. time of investing in the AOT path is a lot less. So the investment is a lot less. So it's all because of the Grawl VM team, that that uh, pushback, any any reason or concern that you have of going out and testing something, uh, right. yeah, that that is a whole lot easier to handle now. It's a whole lot easier to swallow. It's like, hey, yeah, I'm going to invest three minutes in seeing if this thing can uh, perform better with AOT processing. Oh, for sure, and it's and it's actually worth doing, even if you're not using Grawl VM, right? Uh, like Grawl, to what you just said, by the way, 100. percent I, I want to just the, the Gravium stuff has just gotten so much better. 22.3 is amazing. And I, I talk to people about this all the time. In, in 2020, when I first started doing the Spring Native videos, my build was 10 plus minutes for like a barely functional uh, Tomcat and Hibernate app, you know, JPA app, you know. Uh, I don't even know if we even managed it. Well, yeah, we did. We probably got JPA working, you know, that was like your 80% bread and, bread and butter like Spring app. So of course we got that working first just to see what the worst case scenario looked like because Hibernate, is unkind uh, to yeah. efficiency, you know. Um, so that actually, uh, the Spring Native stuff, I went down the, the Redis path. Right. right? Oh. It, was, it was easier. Uh, so yeah, yeah things, things worked out. It worked out great. And, and, but the, so a huge part of what we've done is to make things better. But also, I got it's, it's super worth mentioning that the GraalVM team has just done a phenomenal job. Yeah. Just a, a phenomenal job. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I the builds have gotten minute, shaving off you know 80 90 percent of your build time, and this is like in the last couple of months, like from yeah. 22.2 to 22.3, massive improvements, right? And and from 2020, the year of 
yeah. for today. I mean, it's just insane. I, I imagine if Java got like 90%, like what if 90% of your build time went away from Java in 2008, in 2020 yeah. to Java now, which that was, that'd be four versions ago. So we're nearly at Java 20. So Java 20, or Java 16, imagine from Java 16 to Java 20 that, you know, yeah. your builds went from a second, your, your runtime, your startup time went from a second to like a 10th of a second. Yeah. And you did nothing. You just upgraded your JVM, right? Yeah. I'm not saying they couldn't deliver some a win like that, but GraalVM did, you know? Yep. That's phenomenal. Phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, Another give it a try. I've taken from you, and, and I, I believe it 100%, is the GraalVM as a JVM, even for just-in-time compiling, is yeah. fun and fast. And yeah. Improvements. So I use SDK, ma'am. You're familiar with yep. that? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and it's not a difficult process. And it's a, it's a fun 30-minute uh, exercise of go start .io, create something right. simple, hello world, yeah. and then use SDK man to switch your JVMs and run a test, run a performance test. I have this uh, test that I used where, I, hey, I grab uh, CSV data, I pump right. it into Postgres, and I pump it into Redis as kind of a comparison, like how fast can I read? And, and it's really basic. But I use right. that test that takes about six minutes to run. Yeah. Uh, but I use that test to kind of validate this JVM approach and the Grawl VM. That was the one that for this particular test, it opened my eyes and it, yeah, it made me switch. So I've been using it ever since. Phenomenal. And you, uh, what is that for people listening? I don't know if they know this. Uh, I mean, I think most people do. What is it? Is, is it dot .stkrc or something like that? SDKman.io, isn't it? No, I know the website is, but yeah. Uh, what is it called? Um, SDK. What are you trying to find? Oh, the SDKRC, the property file. Yeah, yeah. If, if you can, if you put. Yeah. Init. You init your your repository. SDK init. Right. Uh, you'll grab that that property and give you a, like a basically a an env uh, for that directory. Right, and, it, and you can just go if in you set up the shell. Yeah, you set up the shell. This SDKman will do it for you, but you set up your shell so that when you cd into a directory in which there is an a, a, a .stkrc, yep, it'll automatically activate the correct version of the JDK and install it for you. Just just by seeding into that directory. So when you're working on a project that uses, you know, a very old old version of Java like Java 17, uh, then you can automatically switch to that. And if you want to once you go back to this stuff you're writing for today that's intended for production in 2022, then you get the current version of Java, which might be Java 19 or Java 20. Um, so it's nice to be able to go back to the very old Java 17, the one that nobody should be using anymore, you know. Uh, oh, boy. So, you know, again, build packs, top of mind, the build packs right now <laughs> uh, Java 17. And I'll, I'll use this as a plug. Right now, the, the discussion for the 2023 roadmap uh, right, Paketo is open. Uh, so if you're interested in build packs and if you're, uh, you've got some Absa. needs, yeah, go uh, let the community know, like raise your questions. What would you like to see supported? One of the things right now is um, the there's a limit on the number of layers that we can put into these build packs. And that's where right. questions like, hey, you know, right now the build pack that I'm pushing out has Java, it can be Java native. It also does Go and uh, proc file. So it's got multiple build packs included in it. And the idea is like, maybe we 
limit that or we go to a, a single language uh, build pack so that we can fit more. I can have Java 17 and Java 19 in the Java build pack. Uh, right now, we're kind of running some limitations. So these are all questions that are open for discussion right now over there on the uh, Paquetto uh, discussion board on GitHub. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to, that's one of the things that I'm working on uh, is getting Java 19. I've had enough people ask, like, hey, when are we going to support Java 19? But yeah. I, yeah. I'll build a build pack and we'll throw Java 19 in there. And I, I, obviously, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek when I talk about the creaking Fine. the old Java 17, but... Uh, but yeah, Java 19 is definitely out there. It's top of mind. People should be using it. It's production. Yeah. Uh, and Java 20 is just around the corner, right? I mean, probably March. When did we release 19? Uh, when did Java 19 come out? I found this on the web. September 20, 2022. So, you know, we're in December, four months ago, almost, yeah. you know, three months ago, another three months. So call that February? March, I don't know. March. Like yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it, it really is just exciting times. Java twenty, uh, you know, it's as 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 amazing as the Spring ecosystem is. It is really really nice to have this language that has been the bedrock of the framework and so much of what the ecosystem. You know, like I felt for a long time that Java was moving forward despite Java. You know what I'm saying? Like the framework, the ecosystem, the libraries, the the richness of the community, all that served an uh, you know outsized role in advancing the and growing the the size of the community. Right? People were they were using um, Java because of the framework, because of the technology, because of all the applications of, for the JVM and big data and mobile and all this stuff, uh, and, and of course on the web, you know the standard bread and butter enterprise apps that has always been the staple of your, of the Java community, all that meant that Java was going to grow, even if Java itself was stagnant. Right. But then Java eight landed and it just turned everything right, right around. Didn't it? It was phenomenal. You know, it is phenomenal. phenomenal. Um, and so here I am uh, a programmer since the nineties, a Java programmer since the nineties, it's 2022. And I couldn't be more excited to be using Java. You know, I, like it's just a, it's an amazing situation to be in. Um, it really is. It really is. It really, it feels good. Uh, I'm more excited about the community around just Java in general uh, than I've yeah. ever been. Things are just, they're moving in the right direction. Like it's never, there's never been a better time right. to be a Java developer and also a Spring developer. Sure. Now there are some things I've wanted to see in the Java community. Uh, you know, I was just watching a video on one thing that Java doesn't quite do great at at the moment for now, for this instant, as we're speaking. But it might change tomorrow. Who knows? You know, um, uh, is is game development, right? Like video game development. And I was watching a video on Unity. Uh, you know, for game development. Uh huh. In and that uses .NET. That uses C sharp, you know, yep. and they have this like, and a lot of that, the, a lot of the magic uh, for Unity, of course, is tied to the fact that it's got a rendering pipeline and it's got deep integrations, the uh, the UI layer, uh, you know, but they have this thing called Burst Compile or something like that. I think it's an it's a it's like a Java annotation. It's an attribute in .NET parlance, but it's a it's called Burst Compile, 
Um, and you put it on a method and then that one method gets turned into native code. So it's like our JIT, the just-in-time mm-hmm. compiler. Just for the method. Uh, just for one method. You can actually, and you can control. You can say, look, I expect this to be current. And you have to, it doesn't work. You can't just like put any arbitrary object in there. Right. You can only, you know, in that method, you're expected to work in terms of like these, sort of like the um, J and I wrapper yeah. types, you know, the, yeah. like you have the, they have a, you know, low level arrays and, you know, unmanaged memory access and all that stuff that's possible within that method, you know. Um, but if you want to write .NET code using these, these types that are in turn peers for C, C, C and C++, you know, like low level arrays and all that kind of stuff. You can totally do it, and it and it just turns that one piece of code into native code. I'm like, how, we already do that with GraalVM, right? GraalVM does that. There's a just-in-time compiler that does that for us. You know, it turns certain code paths into native code, um, but only after successive runs. And now we have GraalVM, and now we have project laden. How hard would it be to like? Is that what it is? That well, so what this is, you know, for Java. Uh, I just shared a link with you uh, to libgdx. Um, one, I got, I got lucky uh, that I got to work with a lot of gaming companies uh, yeah. and understanding what makes things work and how it works. Uh, oh. And this is, I, I, again, I wanted to understand gaming. Uh, so I went out and I, I played with this for a while. I built some games. I, I did some fun stuff and yeah, there is options. And this is just one there. There's multiple and the games that you can produce with frameworks like this are actually impressive. Yeah. They're really, really good games. So there's a, a big community around there. It's different. But the nice thing about it for me is I like to do Java. Like I know Java. I don't have to go out and learn another language. Uh, so I can do these things and build games. And I can do interesting things without changing my language. There's opportunity uh, for the Java ecosystem everywhere. And what we're doing at Spring, that's one of the things that makes the Spring ecosystem so nice is that it's so massive. So any hole that I'm down, any corner that I find myself in around gaming or big data or whatever it is, like there's these patterns that have bubbled up to the top that the Spring team has said, hey, we see that and let's make it easier for you. Let us take some of that pain away so you can do this stuff happier, faster and get to production. Yeah. Wait. Slay the Spire was created with libgdx. Um, I don't, I don't know that title, uh, but really, I mean, that's I've played that game before. That's on. You can get that on PlayStation. There you go. Oh wow, that's really impressive. That's a yeah. I'm not a huge gamer, but uh, wow. Wait, no, no way. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, I was going to say, so somebody actually built a Diablo remake using Java called Riablo. Yes. Um, Disney Heroes Battle Mode by Per Blue. Is that, is that like a real game? It must be. They're using like Disney characters. So either it's, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So this is interesting. Like the game development thing is kind of a, that, yeah, it's a real game. You can get it on um, app Google Play and everything too. Wow, wow! These are all built with this. I had no idea. Yeah. So for you and I, the fun part here is 
there's there's these demos, there's these things that we can do fairly easily, and we can kind of like spice it up a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. The team over at, at Redis, they did a good job of like, uh, you know, hey, here's the, a character, and the character's got this, uh, you know, this level of you know armor, this level of stamina, et cetera, and they would they would use that to kind of like tell the story around gaming, right? It makes right. sense. But what we're doing, you know, our job sometimes the 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 domains that we get to use sometimes they're they're limited, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's fun to like, hey, let's let's think about it in terms of a game and doing demos and stuff like that uh, with gaming. It's fun. Yeah. I just listened to the other uh, podcast episode around Vladen, and again, the idea that I'm a Java developer, right? Uh, and I spent a lot of time comfortable, right? I've, I've been doing this for a while. I can figure out syntax on whatever language. And sure. a lot of times, yeah, hey, there's this library over there that is written in a different language and it'll make things easier. But once I've figured it out, I want right. to come back to the language I'm most comfortable with and I have the most experience with and I've got the most tooling around. I want to do things in Java. And then rock and roll. This idea of yeah. all these other one-off things that I've done that now I can bring back into my Java ecosystem and still you know, work the same way that's a massive change for me. And that's kind of like, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to go and get rid of um, some bash shell that I had and replace it with a spring shell uh, natively compiled binary that I can run on my laptop, on my Darwin laptop. I have a version for my uh, ARM64 laptop. I've got a version for my my cloud. So I can run them as GitHub Actions. Those kinds of things where I'm not dealing with uh, the syntax between bash on OSX and, and bash on Linux. I've got a native binary that works wherever I compile it for. And I can do these Amazing. things. So I'm building this stuff out, but I'm using a language that I love. So yeah, this is just another example of things that we get to do. I want to do Amazing. more with Java. Less with Yeah, language. yeah. Exactly. Java makes me look... Uh, being able to, the fact that I can viably do all these things, I again, that's I knew there's like a compelling story for Java and in mobile, yeah. uh, you know, obviously. And I knew there was a compelling story for Java on the server side. Um, but to see it, like, go to games and stuff, oh, that's well, super cool. Yeah. And now, right, the, a lot of the <sighs> push back around Java was performance and how it was going to run, the JVM, right? right? And now even that goes away. So that you bring this up, that we're talking about games, right? That is going to change significantly uh, for the gaming community, right? If there are Java right. programmers out there that are enjoying using things like LibGDX, now we have this option, right? Whether it's supported today or not, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, right. Definitely something worth taking a look at. Can we make these games that are blazing fast with AOT processing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's so that's there's that, but also there's the um, the project Panama, right? This project, like, th- I'm actually really excited about this, and uh, I'm as excited about this as I am Laden. Like, Laden scratches an itch that we already have scratched uh, uh, with GraalVM, right? Eventually, Laden will commoditize GraalVM by assimilating it, right? And we they've been. Oracle have been pretty forthcoming recently uh, in the last several months about their ideas for a continuum of constraints and condensers and all that stuff to, uh, to you know, 
to make to, to at the end of which at the end of the spectrum might lay uh, Gravium. But but for me, I'm really interested in Project Panama, which is an itch that I don't. Project Panama. Huh? What is Project Panama? Oh yeah, sorry. Um, it is. What if Jay and I didn't give people hemorrhoids? Right? Like, what if you know? What if I had a really nice way to work with native code, native types, right? With if you're, if you're using Python or, or Ruby or or even C sharp, right? C sharp and 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 .NET have great interop with native code, right? Rust has great interop with native code. Um, Perl and PHP, all all these other languages make it pretty trivial to write C code and then talk to that C code from the language, the host language, right? And uh, mm-hmm. to interop and to marshal certain well-known types across the memory boundary from the managed code to the unmanaged code, you know? Java, not so much. And to, uh, Java, you know, we have JNI, but it's a, a complete nightmare to use. Um, and you end up writing, you end up like reducing everything down to it's like ints, booleans, strings, car arrays, you know, just the absolute most basic types. Don't, don't, as soon as you start trying to worry about concurrency or objects uh, or even, you know, pinning memory to certain places, all that just goes out the window. So it's just better to do everything by value, copy by value, you know. Um, And it's, it's, it's just not pleasant. It's not a good experience. Then there's a, there's also the synchronization issue. You have to do a lot of code gen. So you have to do like, yeah. you create a Java class with native methods, you know, native the keyword. And then you write C++ code or C code, actually just functions that map to the class name underscore function name, you know, method name. Uh, you write C code and these become like through a sheer like engineered coincidence, they sort of map to the uh, to the Java code. So when you call this native thing, it actually ends up calling the right thing in in C code, and then you have to, and then that glue layer, that all that generated code, usually what you do is you just use that generated layer, that C code that has names that line up with the names of the types on, on the Java side. That code is just a place for you to then call the actual library. Because again, Java doesn't have standalone functions, right? Everything is, a, is an object plus a method. Um, and so you have this like, you have to write more C++. Like it, it's, it is not a good situation where the interrupt mechanism for Java and C means I have to write more C. Right. Like my goal is to stop doing that and, and get over to Java as quick as possible. Yep. And, you know, there's been some improvements, modest improvements. Uh, like 10 years ago, they created something called JNA, right? JNA is um, a foreign function interface. So basically it's, it's like, because uh, some types export their symbols. And so you can, some native code export symbols that you can actually link to from Java code dynamically, you can introspect it. So, uh, and, and, you know, COM was a great example of how this could be very useful, right? Like yep. with COM, I can enumerate all the types there. I can enumerate all the available interfaces dynamically at runtime. There's no reason for me to like, you know, I, I don't mind doing dynamic dispatch to this COM, COM stuff um, from my C-sharp or Python code, right? It's, it's completely possible to do that. Uh, it's only this, it seems like we've missed an interesting opportunity here. So with JNA, uh, basically you write code that, that ma- matches certain conventions and then you can just call functions, right? Um, native code. And that's pretty good. It's a little bit slower, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's doing dynamic dispatch, but it's still native code. I'm interrupting with native code and I don't have to write more native code to do it, right? Yep. Uh, to, to glue Java and the native code together. Um, 
the Project Panama. Project Panama goes a step further. It says, okay, what if we could code generate a lot of the glue code so you don't so you don't give up on the speed, mm-hmm. right? What if there's an easy tool you can use to code generate? Uh, and for the code that you you're doing, um, you're still marshalling back and forth. You, you you know you still it's still not advisable to send a, a collection of deeply nested objects across the boundary, right? It's still going to be a, a bad story, but but at least to the extent that you're doing things that might cause issues uh, that would require you to write C code, you can you can do some of that. Like I I, I think it was like glue code. Like a lot of the stuff I want to do when I call into a native code is to like make sure I clean up whatever memory was allocated. Right. I'm passing around a pointer, for example. Well, now I have the ability to actually like pin things to memory in Java. I have the ability to like have managed uh, unmanaged uh, arrays and references. I have the ability to do all this kind of like not quite pointer arithmetic, but you know. Right. And I can do it within a scope. I can actually have Java code that runs in a scope uh, yeah, that gets garbage collected. You know, um, it's just really good. It's just really, really looks to be amazing. I don't know when it's going to go GA, mm-hmm. but that's another thing where let me run Java code for ninety nine percent of it. But when I want to do my, you know, my um, uh, Open GL or whatever, you know, or yep. Metal, you know, for Mac, yep. if I want to do native code there, let me just use that directly. Uh, the performance critical stuff that will be something that's another thing that i found in this role is that a lot of our community has channels where they go to get news and where they're yeah. learning things uh and i've i've found so many more and a lot of these <laughs> are you know like the uh around the jdk like all the different channels all the different projects that are moving our ecosystem forward, but they've yeah. all got their own discussions, their own channels, their own uh, rules and how they're moving things forward. Uh, and that's been fun to see yeah. how active our community is. And it's open source. Right. right? Like this is a whole nother thing. Uh, you know, somebody was, I shared the link around the roadmap for potato and they're like, well, I thought that was just for the internal teams. I thought it was just kind of like, saying, no, no, no. This is part of the community. This is your yeah. chance. And that's the way open source works. You got to use your voice. And those people that have figured that out, that's a big win. That is like the the biggest cheat code <laughs> that, that I can possibly think of is like, use the latest and greatest stuff. Yeah. Your, your favorites, use their stuff, use the, the new versions, use the snapshot versions and give your feedback. That is such a great way to be a OSS contributor is by right. doing the latest and greatest stuff and giving feedback. You don't have to code things. You don't have right. to fix the bugs. Finding bugs is super valuable, right? Find those edge cases for whatever you're doing. Right. Find that reason. Like, hey, well, we can't go. We can't upgrade to this because of. Do you, have you told anybody? Have you yeah. told anybody that you're having problems upgrading to whatever version because of this thing? And just that mindset change is such a big cheat code huge up up left left right a a b b i think what is it what is the cheat code for contra or something uh but no yeah you're right that's i and then by the way if you were uh imagine you're writing up you've got a code base on which you've been working dear listener and um you've got a framework in your head for how you intend to introduce new features it's it's not that you wouldn't take input from others, but certain things have to land a certain way. Otherwise it's just going to cause you more work. 
because because uh, they don't have the context around what you plan on doing as somebody who's, somebody who's intimately involved in the project and works on it on a day-to-day basis. Uh, they, they can't possibly have written the code with what you have in mind in mind, even if you've just been really great about writing everything down in bugs and in, in wikis and roadmaps and uh, forecasting every possible t- change. Most people aren't going to take the time to read all that, to come fully to grips with your entire code base before they submit one trivial PR, you know? So not only is just sending an issue or or sending feedback useful, actually sometimes it might be more useful than trying to make the change yourself because it may not be the way that we want, we as a, as, as a lead, a lead, a project lead, or you as a project lead would have wanted it. Right. And, and so yeah, please, you're 100. I couldn't, I couldn't more strenuously uh, second what you just said. It's a, it's everything. Yeah, send feedback. Send, just be, be a voice in the, in the. We don't use Discord. Uh, not, that's a, that's the game. We use a, a Stack Overflow, GitHub issues. Yeah, yeah, if you want, if you want the Spring team to see something, you know, pull yeah. on the stack, pull on the GitHub issues string. You know, the Spring team notices those. <laughs> um, don't abuse it. This is not a question and answer form, but yeah, we do care about when things show up on GitHub issues. That's a, a surefire way to get attention uh, and hopefully good attention if you have good ideas and good feedback. And but if you're just there to like complain or, uh, you know, not complain, complain is fine. Just don't be horrible about it. You know, like a lot of people are very, very friendly and very kind and they know that nobody's here. Uh, nobody, nobody has infinite free time, you know, like it's, Every bit we choose to do is is a concession of some sort. So most people are fine. Just don't be a jerk. Yeah, and that's that's a you know for my my tiny little uh, contributions. I love that people use it. Yeah, I love uh, I love still uh, when PRs get accepted. Uh, that I yeah that brings much joy. Uh, joy. But now I also uh, when things get used enough, then people start asking for more features like. Just my little projects, just seeing that and understanding, yeah, there's concessions. Like you have to like balance out the constraints, the time, the resources, the value uh, for the work that you put in. And yeah, open source is not easy. (laughs) It is not easy. And getting other people to use your stuff is just like the first thing. Uh, And then, oh my goodness, other people are using your stuff. So then that's the the what did you the second phase right of your oss like yeah oh yeah yeah hey it got out and people are using it now but now people are using it right care of it right there's a a whole lot that goes into it and also it's kind of a it's really impressive to me i mean if you got something for free like open source when i say free i mean cash dollars you know currency right it doesn't cost you currency directly um there's a there's a tangible cost in terms of time obviously and, and and effort but but if you get something for free then literally the the barrier to to moving on if you haven't otherwise contributed to it if you're just using it and it doesn't cost anything the barrier for you to move on and choose some other project is nil it costs nothing to do that right you have no reason not to just abandon something and go to something else that you perceive to be better because you haven't lost anything in, so, in doing so, except for maybe what, I mean, whatever, the, the time that you use to try it out. So when somebody uses your code, when they're still using the open source, when in theory, there's 
infinitely many alternatives, you know, right? that's a pretty big validation, right? Obviously, yep. it's not always the case, but it's a pretty big validation of just how awesome what you're doing is when given, you know, other things. Yeah. They could, they choose to stay with you. One of the, one of the goals or one of the, the beliefs I guess I have is like, as a software developer, the things that I did, uh, like, oh, I could go down this route or I could go down this route. You know, a lot of times there's right. two, maybe three options. And more often than not, the option I chose was the one that got me to my milestone first. I wasn't thinking of anything beyond like, what's it going to be like six months from now? I was thinking about, hey, I got this thing in front of me. I need mm-hmm. to accomplish. Uh, I've got a couple of options. Which one gets me to that first? And that's where my... Yeah, that was most of the decision for a long time. So what I want to do is I want to make that first choice. I want to make that decision as easy as possible by providing okay. like easy button examples. Like, hey, yeah, copy this. Here's an example of, of getting to that milestone and get those kind of things out the door. Five minutes. So I'm trying to make it so that, hey, here's how we do it. Here's how you do it over here. And here's an easy example of getting there that you can go and take and use and yeah heck yeah so these one off that's it's just an example of doing a thing right Right. and it's out in a repository for some customer that asked for it you know years ago but then that one little thing has an issue shows up like somebody says hey like hey can we do this thing like i I, I like it thank you uh and could we do this like that that makes me happy that makes (laughs) me happy yeah, absolutely. Um, my friend, I, I, I love all the stuff you're doing. I, I, you're obviously uh, super, I mean, it's, it's just such, it's so, it's, I'm just endlessly grateful that you do not work for the competition. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I can talk to you. I know that people want to talk to you as well. Where do they go to find you? Are you on the internet? If you want to be found, I think we've established that you are both on the internet and want to be found. But yes. just, just in case, if you want to be found, where <clears throat> do people go to find you? Deshaun.com has all of my social links. Uh, How do you spell that? D-A-S-H-A-U-N.com. D-A-S-H-A-U-N.com. And it has links to all my other stuff. Nice. Positories and blogs and videos and all the goodness. That's your like, would you say that's your springboard? Uh, Yes, that that is exactly (sighs) springboard. Nailed it. Sorry. Um, Thank you, my friend. Appreciate you. Uh, Thank you. This was fun. Super fun. I appreciate it. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm Josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the 
production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.